As you're being seated, if you would please get out your copy of God's Word as we look at it together in Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. We will be looking, uh, as you can see in your bulletin, there's just one verse that we'll be looking out of Luke 18. Uh, But we'll be taking a look at other parts of the scriptures today, so we'll be kind of bouncing around the Bible this morning as we take a look at all that this passage uh, has to say about our topic today. So I'm going to read this verse, and we will ask God's blessing on our text. So here, Luke chapter 16, will be in verse 18 today. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let us now go to our God and ask his blessing on our text today. Oh, Jesus, we have a challenging text in front of us today. This has been the center of much confusion, center of much pain, And we ask that we would be able to look at this accurately and that we would find the comfort that you have for us, even in this passage. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What we have before us today is one of the advantages of preaching what's called expositionally through a text. It means you're starting with a book. And you preach verse by verse through that book until you get to the end of that book. And the reason why something like this is advantageous is there are passages of Scripture that are difficult to teach. There are passages of Scripture that we would rather not talk about, that are hard to think through. And going through these things verse by verse doesn't allow you to skip anything, (laughs) at least not be able to do so easily. When I was looking at this text and studying this, the way that most commentators approached it was they would tie it back correctly to the previous two verses, verses 16 and 17, which I will read. Jesus is saying that the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. And here we take a look at this verse, which seems to come out of nowhere. We've been previously talking about the love of money. And the next passage, you'll be talking about more or less the same topic. And then we have this passage on divorce right here in the middle. Most commentators would say this is just the, um, an example of what Jesus is saying of the laws not going away. That this rule that is set forth in God's law is still in effect, even in the New Testament. But I didn't want to just say that, tack it on the last three minutes of my sermon. We wanted to take a look at this and take a long look in this passage and to pause here. Divorce is something that is always going to have a measure of pain in it. And I think if I was to look out into this congregation, I think most of us, if not all of us, have in some way been touched by it. And have had questions about it. And as difficult as divorce is, and as hard as this is, as horrible as it is, as it's not God's ideal, there are two allowances 
for divorce. We'll be covering those today. And those are adultery and abandonment. You can see in your outline what we're going to be looking at today. First is that divorce is part of the fall, not God's ideal. And the second point, which you can see on your outline stuffed in your bulletin there, is that God provides specific regulations to it. This is something that we don't want to do on our own. As one commentator pointed out, I believe it was Keener that had pointed this out. You, if you are married, were not married in private and on your own. But you were married in front of and with the church. So we would say that we are not able to divorce privately and by ourselves. It should be something that should be done in consultation with the church. And we're going to see how that's going to take a look and how this is going to play out. When we look at a topic like this, we don't want to hang everything on just one verse. One verse is authoritative enough. If God says it once, he said it, and we obey it. What we want to make sure is that we don't isolate what God has said and ignore the the larger context and all the things that he has said about a topic. So we're not going to look at just Luke 16, 18. We're also going to be taking a look at Matthew 19. So go ahead and be turning there with me, if you will. If we were just to look at Luke, we would see the meaning is actually quite plain. That if there is a divorce, then there would be adultery in both parties. But that's not all that has to be said. So we're going to pick up in Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12. This isn't the only other place. There are several places. I think I found over a dozen verses talking about this, but... The teaching, all the things are very well represented in this passage. So we're going to spend most of our time here, but we're also going to be looking into 1 Corinthians 7. That'll be later on. So here, Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 1. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by saying, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Now... In Matthew 19, the Pharisees are at their usual tricks of trying to pin Jesus down and to prove that he's not really following Scripture. 
But time and again, as we've seen, he flips the tables around and shows that they are the ones who are not, in fact, reading and and, and interpreting Scripture correctly. You see, at the time, there was a great debate during Jesus' time about what was the cause for divorce, what would be the proper cause for it. And what they've referenced in their debate, the center of that, is Deuteronomy 24. I promised you we'd be bouncing around the Scripture, so turn with me. Deuteronomy 24. And it was this passage in particular that they're referencing both here in Matthew 19 and was the center of great debate. Here is what they were trying to pin Jesus on. Deuteronomy 24, starting in verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her... And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends it out of her house or the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. You shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So we're covering a lot of ground here. What's going on is Jesus is answering the Pharisees wanting to quote this section. They're saying, aha, aha, Moses commanded us that if there would be an indecency that we get to divorce. The way and the uh, focal point of the debate was what emphasis is in verse 1. Is the emphasis on if you have found some indecency in her, or is it, as one scholar put it, have you found some indecency in her? Where is the emphasis? Is it possible that if for anything that you find indecent, which at that time could have been anything from adultery to burned toast, or just finding someone who is more attractive, was that indecency enough? Or was the emphasis on indecency and it just be adultery? Well, there were two camps. There was one that said you could divorce for any reason, one rabbi school, and the other said it was only adultery. And here, the Pharisees wanted to center in on this text. They wanted to say, here's our proof. Here's what we've got. We pinned you. And what Jesus says is, no, let's take a look at the whole thing. And he broadens this out. And he shows us what's our first point is that divorce is not the ideal. So what is? The ideal was what we saw all the way back in Genesis chapter 2. Where God created male and female and brought them together in paradise. And it was each was given unique capabilities, unique characteristics that would complement one another. And be working in harmony in the garden, bringing glory to God and peace on earth. That's the ideal. But of course, as we know, Genesis chapter 3, sin follows. And wherever sin follows, everything breaks. Including even this of what we see of marriage. So Jesus answers this. Here was the ideal. One man, one woman, for life together. So closely bonded it would be like one body, one flesh. And that to try to tear that apart would leave nothing but pain and scarring. 
supposed to be a beautiful thing. But by the time we get to Deuteronomy 24, marriage was seen, as it is today, as a cheap thing. Husbands could dismiss their wives with little more than a conversation in the living room and could send them away. And without any sort of documentation, they would have no real way to support themselves after that. So we have in Deuteronomy 24 is an allowance to say there is, if you're going to do this in this specific situation, it's very limited in its role. If you're going to divorce your wife and you send her away, that's a one-way ticket. Because some would try to divorce and remarry and divorce and remarry the same person as per their convenience. What God was doing was putting a stop to that practice. was saying, you can't do that. If you're going to, if there is an indecency, if there has been adultery, you can. There's going to be a legal document you give her. You're going to give her a life after that. And limits how far this goes. That's what Jesus is saying here in this verse. And he upholds that same thing. That if there is adultery, then divorce is allowed. But it's still not the first resort. As one commentator pointed out, it's no coincidence that Matthew 19 in this teaching about divorce immediately follows chapter 18, which is about forgiveness. And that this should be our first attempt, making every effort for reconciliation and forgiveness. So this is what he has here in these verses. Now you may notice, if we turn back to Matthew chapter 19, with a really astute, we're reading along with us in this passage, I'll say, I'm noticing Jesus is using two different words here. In Matthew chapter 19, Verse 9 says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And it's true. There are two different words that he's using here. The word that's translated sexual immorality, or for for those of you that like to nerd out with me in Greek, this is called porneia is the word there. And it is a very broad word. The Things that you could translate as sexual immorality can go from anything from adultery to homosexuality to other practices that we won't mention in our family context here today. But all of those things would qualify. But there are those that will try to game the system. And I've seen this, unfortunately. There'll be those, I've met one man who was uh, hopelessly addicted to pornography and had for all intents and purposes replaced his wife with airbrushed images on the screen and was unapologetic and unrepentant in that practice. I think in extreme cases such as that, that those sorts of things can rise to the level of sexual immorality and can become adultery and can become in those cases, extreme cases, rare cases, grounds for divorce. That's what we see here. This is not meant as a means of lowering standards for divorce, but of raising standards for husbands and raising standards for others that might try to say, it's like, well, I'm not breaking the letter here. I'm still being physically faithful to my wife. No. 
this is supposed to be when we're going to, and the chief sin here in, in, in adultery is breaking that one flesh union. When we bring someone else into the marriage bed, we are defiling what is marriage. One man and one woman forever. That one flesh union. And in that case, a divorce would be legally recognizing what has already taken place. A renunciation of the marriage vow. Now still, even in these extreme cases, we would want to first say, we want to push for forgiveness and reconciliation. Too often people look to divorce as an easy way out, and it isn't. Instead, we need to look at it as something like an amputation. You wouldn't amputate your arm for a splinter. You wouldn't amputate your arm for a broken bone. You wouldn't even amputate your arm if the muscle was never going to work quite the same way as it did before. It would only be if your arm was threatening the rest of the life of your body would you even consider something like that. And even then with tears that it has gotten to this point. I think only when we have to that point would we see this text applying as an absolute last resort. Here, this is built in as a protection for the innocent. One is not forced to expose oneself to disease or debauchery. It's not a requirement. But there is another case that we're going to consider today. Another allowance for divorce. And for that, we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So turn with me, if you will. First Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 10. This is Paul writing to the Corinthian church. And he says, To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that any brother, that any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her children. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Here, Paul is bringing us yet another specific example. And that has arisen out of the gospel going forward into all these different cities and countries. It's getting a little warm. I'm going to take off my jacket if you all promise not to tell the presbytery. When we look at 1 Corinthians 7, because the gospel has been going out, there have been a lot of people that are coming to Christ. But not everyone is doing so. Sometimes you have the wife that comes to Christ and the husband who does not, or the other way around. And there was confusion about what to do from both cultures. There would be some who would have been taken more from the Roman culture that would have thought it been some sort of duty of theirs to divorce someone who didn't share the religion. 
point of that being they didn't want to give any rise to uh, competing cults within the Roman Empire. There would be others even who were Christians that might have been confused by Paul's command to not be unequally yoked and decide that if they are now married to an unbeliever that it's their duty to divorce. And here what Paul is saying in verse 10 that that's not supposed to be the case. That ordinarily husbands and wives should stay together. And that even if you have an unbelieving spouse and that unbelieving spouse consents to live with you, then live with them. That's his call. This is not an allowance to purposefully marry someone who is not a Christian. That's setting that's also disallowed in Scripture in 2 Corinthians 6.14. But when we look at this passage, we can see if we find ourselves in this situation, there is guidance. Now, he seems to be adding something here. We looked at the earlier passage in Matthew. It says that Jesus is saying that it's only sexual immorality that would allow for a divorce. Is Paul wrong in saying this? There are some that would look at verse 10 and be, or excuse me, verse 12 and be confused. He says, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. This would be contrasting what he said earlier in verse 10, where he says, not I, but the Lord. Is Paul contradicting Jesus here? And the answer is no, so we can relax. What he's doing here is when he's saying that not I but the Lord, he is referencing Jesus' teaching. In verses 10 and 11, these, this is ground that Christ has already covered. But here in verse 12, this is ground that Christ himself and he was on earth did not cover. But Paul is still writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. These are still Jesus' words, even if they're printed in black type. And they are just as authoritative as the words that we see in red type in the Gospels. This is still God's instructions to his people. So what we see in verse 15 is where the allowance for divorce comes. And this is in the case if the unbeliever says, I want nothing to do with this relationship. I'm going to leave. And Paul says, God has called you to peace. And that if they are not going to stay, have no desire to stay, all reconciliation efforts have gone, it is with heavy heart then that they are allowed to go. It's not something that we rejoice in. This is not something that we are pleased with. But it gave the opportunity both then for those wives that found themselves without husbands that they were now able to go and be remarried and not sin against God. That this was an allowance for the hardness of heart in the culture. There have been those that would want to take a look at these things and consider it's like, all right, well, then what is abandonment? What is separation? Because we'll see folks as well who, what about in the cases of abuse? When we have someone who is either physically or verbally abusing the other spouse, are we saying it's like, well, a person who is a Christian would never act that way, at least not in any way consistent or unrepentantly. So this person is an unbeliever, but he's not leaving the house. Does this mean that... I'm not able to find a divorce or that I must stay in this condition. Again, I've, this is something that this was a really hard sermon to put together. 
this, it was very emotional putting this together. So I've seen situations where these things are the case. And there have been those that have been very helpful in guiding me forward. One of this was, was John Frame. He wrote a wonderful book called The Doctrine of the Christian Life that explored these areas. And the way that he looked at abandonment, again, it was in extreme cases and to be done in consultation with the church. But if there was a husband or a wife who had now, it was, they were not able to put any sort of credible evidence that they were going to live by their marriage vows anymore, whether they had left the house or not, was going to be grounds for this sort of passage to take effect, that this would be abandoning. For a husband to be beating his wife, he is abandoning his promises to her, to protect her and to love her. If he refuses to provide for her, this would be a breaking of those vows. Again, this is something that is to be done with much care. This is something to be evaluated, not by oneself, but in consultation with the church. These are really difficult things to work through. You were married with the church. So if if there comes to a point where that marriage is in trouble, have the church help. It's what we're here for. It's not supposed to be a place where we would look at you askance, but it's a place where you can be able to find safety. So now where does all this leave us? This is a really difficult place and has been a sad text to go through. But is this the only note that we can leave it on? And I don't think so. You see, we might be sitting here and thinking that either you yourself have gone through a divorce, maybe your parents have gone through a divorce, or you have friends that are going through a divorce, and you think this is the most painful experience that they've ever gone through. Or perhaps you could look to them and say, well, I I know the circumstances behind that divorce, and that was not any of those things that we see here in the Bible. There have been those that had come and would say that they would want a divorce because they're simply unhappy. And it's like, God would not want me to be unhappy. It's like, where'd you read that? That's not the point of marriage. The point of marriage isn't happiness. The point of marriage is holiness. And that when those things get hard, we don't try to lop it off. We don't split apart a one flesh because there's pain in one section of it. But you might say, it's like, well, yeah, that's true. I regret that that's happened. So am I just doomed to live in sin forever? I got divorced and I got remarried and it wasn't a biblical divorce. What do I do? I think in this case, this is when we are reminded of the grace of the gospel. Yes, if that's what you did or that's what your friend did, yes, that was wrong. But there is someone who paid for that divorce too. Christ on the cross has paid for divorces, has paid for adulteries, has paid for abuse. And those things can be forgiven. And those things can be more than just forgiven. They can be redeemed. There is hope that you have beyond a broken marriage. I know this is one of the hardest things that anyone can go through. You bring someone into your life, into the most intimate sections of your heart, and they betray that. And that colors the whole rest of the world. 
Everything that was good and pure and holy, you look at with a glass of cynicism because you've been hurt. Something that was supposed to be the most precious gift that you can give, your own love, now becomes a cruel joke. We need to be honest with that. And realize that the Bible realizes that too. But that there can be more beyond that. When Jesus got up out of the grave, he conquered more than physical death. And he purchased more than the sin for your, the, out of your soul. But when he was resurrected, that was the first fruits of more resurrection that's to come. There is not just spiritual life that's coming. He's going to revive everything. All of creation that is suffering under death and disease will be remade new. Marriages that have died will be brought to life. Pain that you think can never go away can be solved. All those tears that we have shed over these things, and rightly so, can be wiped away in glory. That's the promise that we have in the gospel. That's the promise that we have even when the worst thing that we can imagine happens to us. But there is redemption still. Forgiveness can be found. Hope can be restored. That's the only way where I can say something like reconciliation is possible. It's like, how on earth can you say reconciliation is possible? Because Jesus died on the cross. So reconciliation is possible. You and I have been reconciled to God because Christ died and shed his blood. So if we can be reconciled to God, we can see reconciliation happen between two people. Don't give up hope on that quickly. Yes, it might take years. Yes, it might even be after a divorce. But the reconciliation is possible. And where reconciliation is not possible, redemption is possible. God is not limited by your legal paper. Your life is not determined by a judge's gavel. But Christ is able to work through even the hardest, most painful thing in your life and is able to bring, dare I say it, beauty out of it. Can use that pain. So for those of you that have been through that and have said, no, there is no chance of reconciliation. My spouse has moved so far on. They've been married again, divorced again, married again. It's impossible for that now. There is still one who cares for you. There is still one who is very, very faithful to you. And his name is Jesus. If you've not put your faith in him today, I encourage you to do that. I encourage you to leave behind your sin and embrace the one who has died for you. God has not, Jesus has not given you forgiveness with a pen and ink. He's given it with his own blood. He is faithful and will always be faithful to you. Will never leave you nor forsake you. Even when you're unfaithful to him. He will bring you back. 
hold you in his arms. No matter how far you've gone, you are not beyond his reach. And no matter how dark a cloud that's over your mind right now, and I know is dark, the light of the gospel can still cut through that. And even if all you can get is a glimpse of what Jesus has done for you, hold on to that. Because that's the only thing that's going to get you through something like this. We're not here to offer the latest studies. We're not here with some gimmicky marriage thing, laugh your way to a better marriage, or the four laws to a solid foundation. We're here with the word of God. That's what we have. And he has spoken on this issue. He has set up the ideal. Marriage. One man, one woman, both sinners come together to picture Christ and his church. There are some marriages that don't show that. And there are some that have broken apart. But all of those things will be set right. And one day, we as the church will walk down a heavenly aisle and be wed to Christ in glory forever. That's what we look forward to. That is our hope no matter what it looks like here. So what's our takeaway? Marriage is something that is God's ideal. And it's beautiful. Picturing life in the garden and picturing Christ in his church. Christ, the faithful husband, cares through his death as well as his life for his bride, the church. And the church responds with love and obedience to her husband. Yes, there have been allowances that we've seen here for divorce. There are meant to be protections for the hardness of heart that we see. But such things will be made right. Such things will be redeemed. And for that, and that alone, we have hope. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, our bridegroom in heaven, We come to you knowing that we are broken. That there are some in here that have either known the pain of divorce personally or who are watching friends go through it or have had their parents go through it. That this has touched a lot of people. It's touched me. And I pray that all that are here would find hope in the gospel. That that would not just be a platitude. But I pray that they would see that their sin can be forgiven. And that their hope exists beyond even death. That they have a hope for a renewed creation. And that would settle deep into their soul. So that when pain reaches down in there. That it would find an end. That this pain will do something. That there is a unique glory that awaits and a unique resurrection that is coming. Oh, Lord, hasten that day and help us to hope in that. Not to put our hopes in relationships, not to put our hope in ourselves, but to put our hope in Christ alone. Oh, thank you for your faithfulness to us, dear Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.